Well, you have been hearing about it recently, and you will hear more in the weeks to come. On October 15, 1517, a 33-year-old Augustinian monk named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in uh, Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Actually written in Latin, it was an invitation to his academic colleagues to a debate, a discussion about some church practices which were disturbing him, not the least of which was the sale of indulgences. Well, someone apparently took a picture with their iPhone, used Google Translator, and the rest is history. That wasn't exactly it, but it was as remarkable. Someone did get a copy of the 95 Theses, translated it, and used a new invention called the printing press to make copies. It spread like wildfire, and Luther was literally an overnight sensation. It was the shot heard round the world, and the Protestant Reformation was born. Yes, there were others who had attempted reform before, like John Wycliffe and John Huss, but it was Luther God used. And so, October 31st, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But really, I I suppose we should ask, what's the big deal? Was all of that uproar and subsequent division tearing apart the bride of Christ, as some suggest, was it all really necessary? Was it just a Was it just a Middle Ages religious squabble? After all, we are so much more sophisticated today. Are the things for which they fought really that big a deal? Some have thought not. That it's time to bury the hatchet and to put the issues behind us. After all, there's much more with which we Protestants agree with Catholics than not. This so-called reformation was really a revolution and needlessly divided the church. And and Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, um, by your love for one another. And so is it love, tolerance, acceptance, even of non-biblical teaching and practices? (laughs) The foundation of the church, foundation of our faith? Should we allow a Middle Ages spat to divide us? A legitimate question. Some have thought not. And so in 1994, a group of evangelicals and Catholics got together and authored and signed the Ect Accord, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Their purpose was to to list those areas of agreement between them, and it was a rather long list. Would it be the new 95 Theses of our generation? Could we once for all put behind us the detrimental results of the Reformation? Could we, could we heal the fracture? Make no mistake about it. There were some heavy hitters who either signed or endorsed the agreement. I read the accord in 94, and indeed there were some significant areas of agreement, but... Also listed in the back were those things upon which we still did not agree. And I would suggest that they were the very issues central to the Protestant Reformation. For example, it was was stunning to find that the signers agreed that evangelicals and Catholics still did not agree on the nature of justification. 
Many suggest that justification was the central issue of the Reformation. What do I mean by justification? Justification is how a man or a woman is made right before God. It is, it is how uh, a person's sins are forgiven, indeed removed, and, 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 and how that person is brought into a right relationship with the triune God of the universe. In short, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So understand, the central issue of the Reformation was nothing less than the gospel. And it is not too much to say that the gospel had been lost to the church of the Middle Ages. That is, until it was recovered in the Reformation, recovered by some courageous reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, among many others. Nor is it too much to say that the still current divide between Catholics and evangelicals is of eternal significance. We cannot, we must not bury the hatchet if we stay divided on this most fundamental Christian doctrine. My brothers and sisters, we are able to call each other brothers and sisters because of the gospel of Jesus And so this 500th anniversary is a celebration of an event of greatest import. I cannot overstate what it should mean to us. To be clear, the Reformation does not save us. The gospel alone does. You see, that was the argument of the Reformers. The gospel alone saves. That gospel which had been lost, now recovered, beginning with the posting of the 95 Theses by a 33-year-old Augustinian monk named Martin Luther on the Castle Church door at Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. This man, a Catholic priest and doctor of theology, a, a professor in a, in a backwoods, relatively small German town, stood up to the two most powerful men of his day, the emperor and, and, the, and the pope, and the two most powerful organizations behind them, the Holy Roman Church and the Holy Roman Empire, to recover the gospel, the gospel that saved you. God used this movement to bring the light of the gospel back to bear on the souls of people. The motto of the Reformation printed in your bulletins became post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. It is engraved on the Reformation wall currently in Geneva, Switzerland. In fact, coins minted in Geneva contained the motto for hundreds of years after the Reformation. It is not only the the motto of the Reformation, it is the motto of every believer after darkness, light. I have looked forward to this day, this month, this year for years to celebrate this historically momentous occasion. We have scheduled, as Roy mentioned, a couple of things to do that. First, as it happens, there are five Sundays in October. During the Reformation, there were five titles, if you will, that were used to summarize the central theological uh, theological convictions of the Reformers. They were called the five solas of the Reformation. They are in Latin. But the word sola means only. The five solas also printed in your bulletins are sola scriptura, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide, and sola dea gloria. Translated for you, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone. 
Lord willing, during these five Sundays of October, uh, of October, we will learn much of these. Meaning, we are taking a, a little break from the Gospel of Mark, which we will finish beginning in October. I didn't say in October. I said beginning in October. In this series, I will seek to give the historical perspective. That is, why the Reformers were committed to these five theological convictions and how they differed from the teaching of the Roman church. And, and, but perhaps more importantly, are these recovered truths still are they still viable for today? And if, if, if so, if, if they are as important today as they were then, what are the current threats against them? I, I want you to hear me. The eternal truths recovered at the Re- Reformation have been dismissed again, even by the church. The second thing that we have planned is a Reformation celebration on October 31st. Yes. I know it's a Tuesday evening, but it will take the place of our regular Wednesday evening gathering. Yes, I know there's another event on October 31st that has something to do with candy, but it will be Halloween next year. I am hoping through this month you will see the great value of this extremely special day and you will choose to celebrate with the church. We promise to make it worth your while. We've been planning it for some time for, for both children and adults. Truly, I hope, to, I hope to pack this place out. Yeah, we'll give the children candy on their way out. I could... I could personally not be more excited to be spending this time with you. As you know, that over the last couple of weeks, my, uh, my family and I were able to travel to, to Italy and, and, and tour Italy. I, I do not have the words to express how deeply meaningful that was for me to be in Rome the month before the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So let's begin with sola scriptura, scripture alone. It is printed at the bottom of that design that we have for you. It's the foundation you see of the other solas, what some would call the formal principle of the Reformation. It's from the scripture that the other four solas find their authority. And why were the reformers of the 16th century so committed to this foundational truth? In fact, Uh, Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, recently wrote, we must always remember that what was at stake in the Reformation was nothing less than the authority of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That seems like a rather audacious claim. So how was the authority of Scripture at stake? We will briefly walk through the following three points, which will actually be our points in the ensuing weeks, the 16th century context of sola scriptura, the biblical basis of of sola scriptura, and then the 21st century context of sola scriptura. That is, is it still true and, and needed for the church today? I hope you hear a resounding yes. I suppose we should start with the definition. One author writes, sola scriptura means that only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, that means infallible, without error, sufficient, and final authority for the church. 
Please notice how the Bible is to be the supreme and final authority for the church of Jesus Christ. While that may seem obvious, what was the context of the 16th century that made this such a big deal? After all, did not the church of Martin Luther and and the reformers of his day affirm the inspiration and inerrancy and and authority of Scripture? Why, yes, they did. But they said more. They said Scripture was was not the only inspired inerrant authority. They said that the church embodied in the person of the Pope and the power of the councils was also inerrant and therefore authoritative and on the same level with Scripture, papal and, and council decrees can together be called church tradition, and that tradition handed down by church leadership, even if not, listen, listen, even if not found in Scripture, even if contradicting Scripture, tradition, the church of, of Luther's day said, was inerrant, binding authority. Some, some would even argue that the church saw itself in authority over God's Word. In fact, here is what Dominican theologian Sylvester Prierius, a contemporary of Luther, appointed by Pope Leo X, who was the Pope at this time, this is what he wrote in response to Luther's arguments. He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and Pontiff, that's the Pope of Rome, as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Do you hear what he just said? That the, the, the scripture itself draws its authority from the church and the pope. If you don't believe that, you're a heretic. So brand me. Here's how they did that they said that the church produced the Bible and therefore is an authority over the Bible. Not only that, they said that the church and the church alone has the authority to interpret or give meaning of the text of Scripture. Common people did not have the Bible. They weren't allowed to have the Bible. They could not read or study and and interpret the Bible. It was in Latin. It was not available to them, which is why you saw so many reformers begin translating the Bible into the language of the day. How many Bibles do you have at home? Thank the reformers that you know the words of Scripture. So this tradition all led to, for example, if the church said salvation was to be found in the church, who alone has the authority to dispense saving grace, even though that is not found in Scripture, it is to be affirmed. If the church said that salvation was dispensed by observing an elaborate system of sacraments to include the sacrament of penance not found in Scripture, it is to be affirmed. If the church says Christ's death uh, paid for our sins in eternity, but, but not temporally, that the sinner must pay for his own sins in a place called purgatory, even though that is not found in Scripture, it is to be affirmed. If the church said that you could buy your way out of purgatory with money through the purchase of these things called indulgences, even though such a thing is damnable, it is to be affirmed. If the church said only certain people attain sainthood and go directly to heaven, and they have so many good works that their extra works are put into a treasury of merit, that's what you're buying. Their merits with an indulgence. 
that only saints go directly to heaven, but the rest of us must go through purgatory, even though the scripture declares all of us saints, this erroneous teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the church said that your sins must be confessed to a priest who then assigns works of of satisfaction so that you can then receive absolution, even though the the scripture declares all of us to be believer uh, priests, and that there, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the church said that you could, if you wanted to, pray to the Virgin Mary or to the saints for help, nowhere found in Scripture, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the church said that the Mass with the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, which we will be observing this morning, is a re-sacrifice of the actual body and blood of Christ since the elements literally turn into the body and blood of Christ through this thing called transubstantiation. That teaching, that damnable teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the church says that infant baptism gives justifying grace and removes all original sin, but, 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 but then future sins must be forgiven through this system of penance, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the church says that you can find absolution for all of your sins by ascending the so-called holy staircase, the Lateran staircase, on your knees, reciting the Our Father on each of the 28 steps, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. I saw it happening in Rome. If the teaching of the church says if you die in the crusades against those dreaded Muslims, you you go straight to heaven, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. If the teaching of the church makes a a so-called plenary indulgence through which Purchase, you don't have to just, you don't get to just reduce your time in purgatory, but you get to skip purgatory altogether. That teaching of the church is to be affirmed. Repentance isn't even necessary as long as you have the piece of paper. If the church says you can buy an indulgence to release an already dead loved one suffering in purgatory, again, apart from repentance, that teaching is to be affirmed. If the church says that you can reduce your stay in purgatory by viewing relics, what are relics? Lots of relics, something to do with famous saints, things like fabric from the swaddling cloth of baby Jesus, pieces of his crib, straw from the manger, gold from the magi, a morsel of bread from the Last Supper, a thorn from his crown of thorns, a hair from the Virgin Mary's head, pieces of her, four pieces from her girdle. If you venerate such things, it results in less time in purgatory. That teaching is to be affirmed. By the way, if you paid to see those things in the collection of Frederick the Wise, who displayed them at the Castle Church on November 1st, the day after October 31st in Wittenberg, Germany, you could reduce your stay in purgatory by 1,902,202 years and 270 days. It scares the hell out of me to think that I have to spend 2 million years in purgatory. If the church says that the Pope and the councils do not err, even though the Council of Constance in 1415 recognized three popes who had each excommunicated each other, and even though that very same council burned John Huss at the stake for teaching the gospel and having the audacity to suggest that Jesus is the head of the church and not the Pope, that teaching of the church is to be affirmed. We will talk of these things in weeks to come, but the reformers through sola scriptura said there is only one inspired and errant authority and that is scripture, not the unbiblical, in fact, anti-biblical teaching of the church. 
I have been using several terms about Scripture, which I suppose must be proven in Scripture, since it is our authority. Even as I say that, you must understand that Scripture itself is self-attesting and self-authenticating. say, well, that sounds a little circular. Who else is going to attest God's Word? You? Its own inspiration, inerrancy, and authority comes from itself because it is God's Word and no one stands in authority over it. I don't care what you've heard. This has been the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. It has only been recently that inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Bible has been questioned by those who place themselves again in authority over the Bible. Quickly, where then do we find this teaching on inspiration, inerrancy, and authority? And you should understand that those those three build on each other. To do away with one is to make the truth of sola scriptura crumble. And those who oppose Christianity understand that. And so they attack at universities across our country to include our own. They attack inspiration, truthfulness, and reliability of Scripture. And they attack your faith. It is because Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, that it is inerrant a perfect self-revelation of himself to his creatures. And since it is inspired, God's word, all of it, since it is inerrant, that is without error or contradiction, not just in spiritual truths it addresses, but in all things whatsoever it says, it is the final rule of faith and practice, the final supreme authority for the church and for every believer. My brothers and sisters, there is a reason, there is a reason that we study the Bible every week. And it's not just what I think about a particular topic, seeking to find verses to support my thinking. That elevates me over the, over the text. But we go verse by verse because the Bible is God's Word and the supreme authority over our lives, not me. Now, that is not to say that there are not authorities, other authorities over the church and believers. For example, church leadership found in pastors and elders. The Scripture is clear that we submit to those in authority over us. But, listen carefully, only in as much as that authority is submissive to and consistent with the Scripture. In other words, authority lies with truth, not the person or the position. So in as much as elders and pastors are submissive to and consistent with the Scripture, we obey. But when they are not as they were not in the 16th century, the Scripture remains our ultimate and supreme authority. We go with the Bible. In fact, I would say, I don't have this in my notes, I'd say this. If you ever go to a Sunday school class or you ever go to the church where the, the authority, the, the, the inspiration and the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture is questioned, here you have one response. You run as fast as you can. That is an apostate church. So again, where is this to be found in Scripture? As to inspiration, which is the foundation, the Bible is clear that every word Every word is breathed out by God, and therefore, every word is God's word. You see, it has become quite popular to say, well, the Bible contains God's word, as if some of it is God's word and some of it is man's word. 
That means some of it may be really good, but some of it may be really bad. Here's my question. Who decides? There, once again, you place yourself in authority over the Scripture because you are, deci- you are deciding. Such an idea destroys confidence in Scripture. Sola Scriptura affirms it and maintains that confidence. Consider these verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a verse you know. All Scripture, not some of it, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of it is inspired by God and therefore sufficient, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. Here's what you need to know. I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that all truth is found in the Scripture. I am, however, suggesting that everything that is found in the Scripture is true. Second Peter chapter 1 says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Clearly, the Scripture says of itself that every word is from God, such that we can say, listen, listen, what the Scripture says, God says. Is that the way you view the Bible? Consider Paul's words to the Thessalonians. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, certainly, this included Paul's spoken message, his preaching, but it was a message that he had received from God and that he was uh, simultaneously recording in Scripture. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Therefore, since every word is inspired by God, then we can fully trust the Scripture. That is, it is reliable and it is inerrant. That means without error, inerrancy, infallibility. Being without error is the natural corollary to inspiration. In his famous book, Thy Word is Truth, author E.J. Young writes, there is no such thing as inspiration which does not carry with it the correlative of infallibility. A Bible that is inspired is a Bible that is infallible. It is, a, it is, a verbally, it is verbally inspired by a perfect God, and therefore it is itself perfect. I don't care what you've heard. There was another group of evangelicals before, actually, that group in 94 that convened in 1978 to address the continued attacks by mainline liberal, unbelievably Protestant denominations against the inspiration and authority and inerrancy of Scripture. There were more than 300 of the most notable conservative evangelicals of the church, and they met in what is called the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, and they produced an important document called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, I won't read it to you, although I highly commend it to you. It says in its preamble, recognition of the total, total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. So you throw off inspiration, and all of a sudden, you're you're throwing off authority. Exactly. Now, again, it is popular to say, well, where it addresses spiritual matters, it's reliable. This is called the limited inerrancy view. They suggest that God, through His Word, accommodated uh, Himself to human finiteness, 
our limitation, and therefore where it addresses things outside of spiritual truth, like, you know, history or, or demons or, or miracles. Wow, we're so much more sophisticated today. We know that's not true. Of course it's true. Every word of God is true, faithful, reliable, and without error. Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 30 proclaims the same truth. Every word of God is true. Every word. And since God's word is inspired and inerrant, it and it alone becomes the supreme and final authority over the church and every believer. Jesus himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So clearly the reason the reformers were committed to sola scriptura is because the scripture itself declares itself to be inspired, therefore inerrant or perfect, and therefore our final authority. But that leads to what about today? Are there attacks against the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture? Absolutely. Following the Reformation, with the coming of this thing called the Enlightenment, which elevated reason above all things, mankind once again became the judge of Scripture. This time, not claiming to be equal to Scripture's inerrancy and authority, but to be over Scripture and with our own human reason to dismiss those things in Scripture, not submitting to human reason. If it doesn't make sense, we get rid of it. After all, we're the authority. The Enlightenment was followed by liberalism, which with rationalism questions anything in the Bible which is supernatural. Stories in the Bible may contain spiritual truth, but the Bible is, after all, a product of human hands, and therefore it's filled with error. And, of course, anything miraculous to include the deity of Jesus Christ and His resurrection are to be dismissed. Which brings us to our current day and its postmodernism, which does away with objective truth. Let me listen very carefully. It focuses on relativism. What is true for you may not be true for others. And so while Scripture may be true for you, it may not be true for me. There is no such thing as objective truth for everybody. Haven't you heard that? True for all and corresponding to reality. And so we certainly must deny inspiration because it is from God Because if it is from God, it carries with it authority. But certainly, ancient Scripture written by fallible men carries no authority over my life. Exactly. And I become the master of my own destiny. Good for you. We are left, therefore, with those both inside and outside the church questioning, even denying Scripture. Carl Henry, famous theologian in his Important work, God, revelation, and authority says that the church throughout history has faced repeated attacks on the Bible from skeptics, but only in the 19th and 20th, and I would add 21st centuries, have the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's Word been questioned, criticized, and abandoned by those within the so-called body of Christ. While the church of the 16th century diminished the value of Scripture by placing it along. By placing it alongside Scripture, the church of the 21st century devalues Scripture by denying its inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. The liberal church, you see, must do this if they are going to deny certain teachings in the Bible with which they do not agree.
out of time. But I would reaffirm sola scriptura to you today. I want you to understand that is who we are at Alliance Bible Fellowship. We believe the Bible to be God's inspired, inerrant word. And it is our authority. When Martin Luther was called to the Diet of Worms in April 1521, he was actually called to recant his words and his works because he had denied the inerrant authority of anything but the Scripture. Okay, so he had denied the authority of the Pope and the councils, their inerrant authority, I should say. After given a day, he's, he's asked to recant and given a day to consider, he responded with these words of sola scriptura. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, which comes, by the way, from Scripture, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. We are bound by the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, in Christ's name, we come before you to affirm again our allegiance to the Scripture, our allegiance to the triune God of the universe who has sent his Son, the Father who sent His Son to bear in His body our sins on the cross and that by simple faith, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we may be saved. We acknowledge that truth. That is the truth of Scripture. We submit ourselves to its inerrant authority. Would you, would you please Take your rightful place in our lives. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our own self-determining authority. Make us submissive, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.